Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Yeah, so that turn never really went away. Uh, and first of all, that clip is just part of the massive amount of self-valorizing uh, through a, a confluence and conflation between real life and Hollywood that was done about the FBI and about J. Edgar Hoover's role in it. And of course, the G-Man term never went away. In fact, it is the title uh, of uh, the uh, new biography, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It is written by Beverly Gage, uh, a professor of 20th, 20th century U.S. history at Yale. Uh, we are so excited to have her here today. Uh, Beverly Gage, welcome to the conversation. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you poured 13 years of your life into this book, and all you got to show for it is a lousy, stinking Pulitzer Prize for biography. Uh, First of all, congratulations. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, the longer one spends on a project, the higher the stakes become. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And there's a way in which, and I want to kind of just almost jump right into this. Well, let me just begin in a different place. So if I went out on the street and started asking people, uh, who the director of the FBI is right now. First of all, I'd probably you know get arrested or punched or something, but uh, I'd be surprised if four people could come up with the name Christopher Ray. That was not the case for many of the 48 years uh, that J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI, right? He was a legit celebrity. His name was as familiar uh, to the American public as, I don't know, many movie stars. Yeah, he was a celebrity. He was a household name. At the time that he died in 1972, a lot of people actually couldn't remember a time in their lives when he hadn't been there. Uh, They referred to him as one of the great monuments in Washington himself, physically. (laughs) Uh, And so his death came, came as a big shock after that 48 years in office. So I, what I want to do, there's so much to cover here, and we've only got 49 minutes, uh, and which is frustrating because there's so many things I want to talk to one you about. One for each year. One yeah. for each year. There <laughs> we go. So that's exactly how we planned it, by the way. Um, <laughs> so um, I thought, actually, in the first segment, one of the things I think that you do beautifully in this book is capture some of the paradoxes. I mean, you poured, as I said, 13 years in the making. What you got out of it was the world's most precious metal, complexity. Uh, There's a way in which, obviously, I I know one of your colleagues at the time was working on a biography of Frederick Douglass. Everybody loves Frederick Douglass. You're working on a a biography about J. Edgar Hoover. Everybody kind of hates J. Edgar Hoover uh, in various different colorations these days. Uh, and that's got to be hard, right? You must have been looking over uh, at your at your colleague going, 
yeah, maybe it would be nice to be working on the guy everybody likes. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, it is true. One of the things that attracted me to Hoover was actually the fact that everyone, including me, didn't like him very much. And in fact, that he was one of the great villains of the 20th century. And I don't think this book does anything to disabuse people of that idea. But it did seem to me that the image that we had of Hoover kind of sitting alone in a back room, wiretapping everyone, <laughs> that that didn't capture this incredible sweep of time that he was in office. And as you said, the real complexity of his political identity, of his career, of the way that he gained power. And so that's what the book tries to do. It tries to make things a little more complicated without making it a, a redeeming book about J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, and, and it certainly isn't. Uh, we are not spared any of the villainy. But I think, so I wanted, what I thought I would do in the first segment, I thought I'd walk you through what I see as, in your book, a, a series of paradoxes about him that are really, really interesting. And, and maybe you can say a little bit more about each one. Uh, this might be a way to try to cover a lot of ground all at once. So paradox number one, he's a horrible racist and he he's, uh, grows up in an environment. He's part of this kind of permanent Washington family, uh, lives in Washington his entire life, lives in a total of two houses for his entire 70 plus years. Uh, but he's a Washington guy. He goes back, his family goes back to a time when some of them would have held small numbers of, of slaves. Uh, he's He goes through this fraternity, Kappa, Kappa Alpha, which just sort of once again valorizes the idea of racism and the old South and the lost cause and all that stuff. Uh, and he goes on, and we'll talk in the second segment about some of the things perpetrated against, for example, Martin Luther King. But he also fights the KKK. <laughs> so there's the paradox, right? He, you have his fraternity was associated possibly with the foundation of the KKK. And, and ultimately, in the 60s, uh, Hoover turns the FBI loose on them. Say a little bit about how you see that one. It was no surprise in doing research, even starting out, that um, J. Edgar Hoover was racist in lots of ways. And some of the most famous episodes from his career are the ways that he went after Martin Luther King and Marcus Garvey and the Black Panthers. But I wanted to do a couple of things in the book. One is to kind of figure out where that came from. And it wasn't obviously so unusual in the early 20th century U.S., but you're absolutely right that the story of Washington, which was a town that was undergoing segregation, uh, his college fraternity, all of these places, I think, gave a particularly kind of acute flavor um, to Hoover's own racism very early on. Uh, but then I also wanted to be fair to Hoover. And I found all of these moments when, to some degree, he was kind of running against type. One of them is this massive operation they begin against the Ku Klux Klan, against neo-Nazis, against other white supremacist groups in the 60s. Um, in the 1940s, there's an effort to actually do some of the first real federal lynching investigations. Um, the FBI really works pretty hard on that, even though it's very hard to get those prosecutions. You know, there are moments when he's working with the NAACP and they're praising him and he's praising them. So, you know, it is, as with everything in this book, um, a much more complicated story than our kind of quick hit public image would suggest. Right. And just so I want listeners maybe to hear uh, the voice uh, of our subject today. Uh, here's a recording of a call between President Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover in July of 64 talking about racial unrest in New York City. This is A1 Cat. 
That's fine. Do you want me to do that personally? Go up there personally? Yeah, I think it'd be a good thing. I'll do that. I think that, uh, I think that, uh, uh, you ought to announce, uh, next, uh, after a while, yes. uh, through the Justice Department, just tell them that I have directed you to investigate the, the possibility of law violations and to, uh, 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 get me a full report just as you have in Mississippi and just as you have in uh, Georgia and that we're going to be uh, uh, very much on the alert. Well, I, I'll take care of that right away, President. All right. He served, if I didn't say it before, eight different presidents appointed under Coolidge uh, all the way, go, goes all the way and dies in office uh, under Nixon. So, um, so Beverly, let's do another paradox. I think these are fun. He's a xenophobe in a lot of ways. Hoover is a xenophobe who sees a threat and enemies around every corner, particularly if the enemies don't look like him or don't speak the same language he speaks. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> he opposes the Japanese internment. Uh, he actually participates and leads the German internment, the less well-known German internment, uh, internment at the beginning of uh, of World War One. But so, talk about that—the xenophobe who thought the Japanese internment is going too far. He was a xenophobe. You're right. He was very suspicious of people who were not U.S. citizens, and he basically never left the United States. He spent his whole life in Washington, and he was not especially curious about the rest of the world, even though he sent uh, agents around the world at various points. Uh, but he had these surprising moments once again. A Japanese internment was really fascinating to me because uh, you see Hoover actually taking a stand that very few people in Washington took, one that a lot of liberals at the time, including Franklin Roosevelt and Earl Warren, did not take. They were big supporters of mass internment. And Hoover opposed it for a couple of reasons. First of all, as you say, he wasn't opposed to internment per se, but the FBI had its own very particular internment program that had started right on the day of Pearl Harbor, and that was targeted at individuals of German background, Italian and Japanese background, uh, non-U.S. citizens who the FBI had decided were dangerous. And Hoover's stance was two things. One, we don't need to intern all Japanese because we can tell you who's dangerous, right? Leave it to us. We're the professionals. We're the hotshots. Um, number two, he thought it was particularly objectionable to intern U.S. citizens. And about half of the people of Japanese background who were interned ultimately uh, were U.S. citizens. He thought that was unconstitutional. He thought it was a bad idea politically. Um, so he was acting a little bit on principle, a lot on self-interest but it produced this pretty remarkable position that has uh, stood the test of time. Yeah, as you're suggesting, I think there's a little bit in his position against internment that's like, oh no, that's not what we do. We want them walking around and talking so we can kind of follow them and find out who else there is. And I I've got my own way of walk watching over potentially dangerous Japanese uh, people in this country. There's that, but putting them in a pen, then I don't get to learn anything from them. Um, okay, I want to go to another paradox. Um, so Hoover, he takes over this Bureau of Investigation and doesn't even have an F yet, I don't think. Uh, it's just a BI. Uh, and he's, on the one hand, he has to take a bunch of 
basically sort of clerks and turn them into ultimately an agency that can fight very violent gangsters. And he himself is sometimes photographed holding a Tommy gun, uh, squinting down its barrel. (laughs) Um, And so there's sort of that, and it's real. I mean, he really does have to get this sort of largely clerical agency uh, ready to to take on Dillinger and all the uh, other violent gangsters of the 20s and 30s. Um, On the other hand, He's by and large a bureaucrat, right? He's really more fond of soft power. We can talk a little bit about how that soft power works for him. But but that's, he's not really the Tommy Gun guy, right? He's really deep in his heart uh, um, a kind of Roosevelt-era bureaucrat. That's one of the big questions that I had going in is how did this bureaucrat, right, this lawyer, he was not himself a policeman ever. He was not an investigator. He was not a detective. Um, How did this federal bureaucrat become one of the most widely known? And in fact, for most of his career, though it seems weird to us today, one of the most popular figures in American history. And it isn't because he was a crack shot himself, you know, as you say. In 1924, when he became the head of the Bureau, he was just 29 years old. He was a lawyer and an administrator, and he had this vision for the Bureau as basically a place of, you know, skilled lawyers and accountants who were going to do investigations into antitrust cases, uh, a few other things, and have, you know, a handful of, of actual kind of law enforcement types. But it wasn't until the 30s that they began to get this new image with the Tom guns engaged in what we would consider kind of real criminal law enforcement um, and acts of, of, uh, of violence, right, um, both on the part of the criminals and then uh, the FBI beginning to carry guns um, and engage in some of that violence themselves. It wasn't what he intended. I mean, one of the interesting things about him in terms of paradoxes is that he was both incredibly fixed in his ideas, and we can talk about what those ideas were, anti-communism, the way that he ran the bureau. And then he was incredibly adaptable at the same time. So when Franklin Roosevelt said in the 1930s, we need to fight a war on crime and Edgar, you're going to be the man to do it. uh, He sort of says, okay, and says, all right, we're going to learn to we're going to learn to shoot guns, everyone. All right. So next paradox. Um, He's a relentless seeker and compiler of everybody's dirty secrets and dirty laundry. Um, it's one of the ways he gets soft power. As you say, he's very adaptable. So when he has to try to control JFK, who might even maybe even want to get finally get rid of him, uh, he's got a lot, right? He knows about Inga Arvad. He ultimately knows about Judith Campbell, Inga Arvad. Um, uh, possibly uh, he tips off Joe Kennedy about his fact his son is having a, an affair with a woman who may be a Nazi spy of some kind. Judith Campbell, the mistress of one or possibly two uh, mob leaders, uh, is also JFK's mistress. Um, that's how he wields soft power a lot of the time. I know your secrets, so bug off. <laughs> Let me do my job. Uh, you know, on the other hand, he lives pretty openly as kind of something that we would today call the partner of an FBI agent named Clyde Tolson. Uh, and they are kind of treated as a couple. It's like, you know, you don't invite uh, Hoover to, you know, I don't know, a, a Broadway opening or a Hollywood premiere. You invite 
Edgar and Clyde. So say a little bit about that. That Once again, a paradox, a guy who's living a life that isn't sort of this kind of heteronormative thing, whatever it is, we don't really know what they did with their genitalia, but it's not a kind of typical life. And yet somehow or other, he's he, he trades and preys on other people's private weaknesses. There are really two paradoxes in there. One, as you say, is the fact that Hoover spent a lot of his career investigating other people's sexual secrets. So someone, sometimes it was someone like JFK, someone in power. Uh, other times, particularly in the 40s and 50s, you know, the FBI is directed to uh, conduct the investigations that result in lots of gay people being purged from federal employment. It was actually government policy that you could not be gay and be a federal employee. So he's engaged in all of that while he's having this relationship with Tolson himself. And then there's the paradox of their relationship itself, because as you suggest, it's this incredibly open relationship, right? They are a social couple. They travel together. They have all their meals together. When you have your dinner party, you're going to invite them. There are photos of them at Broadway shows and nightclubs. And I mean, the whole run of it, um, they were each other's partners for more than 40 years. And yet there are these parts of that relationship that are incredibly secret. Um, how did they really feel about each other, much less, you know, were they engaged in a sexual relationship? So in the book, you know, again, I tried to kind of lean into some of these complexities and to stick to what we can really know, uh, as opposed to a lot of speculation, particularly about their sex life. Yes. And it, it's, it's, and I think that's appropriate. I will say another revelation there was sort of prior to the solidification of them as a couple. There's this incredibly, Melvin Purvis was one of the early kind of FBI all-star agents, uh, the Dillinger guy. And there's like all these records of Hoover is kind of hitting on him or, or at least flirting with him, right? I mean, you found all this stuff about just, I don't know. I don't even know how you would characterize it. Over this long, long period of doing research into this man's long, long life, right, I got really attached to a few sets of documents, and those Purvis letters were one of them. Melvin Purvis was a young agent who ultimately became famous as the man who shot John Dillinger, although there's some questions as to whether he was really uh, the shot in the end. But before that moment, he and Hoover had this incredibly intimate, flirtatious correspondence that happily Purvis's son uh, kept and that are now, uh, (laughs) that correspondence is in the archives at Boston University. And it is some of the most revealing personal correspondence that is available because Hoover himself ordered all of his personal files destroyed upon his death, which was a big national scandal because were they really his personal files? But even if they were just his personal files, you know, it's kind of crushing for for a biographer at that moment when they're all shredded and burned. Right. So, uh, but it is, it's kind of, you know, there's all this, please don't call me Mr. Hoover. You know? how, how about if I call you director instead? <laughs> Right. It has a little bit of a of a, a kind of workplace sexual harassment. Yeah, no, it's me too. too. Hashtag me too, Melvin Purvis. So, um, okay, last uh, last paradox. 
Hoover drives over the decades this kind of octopodon reach uh, of the FBI into virtually every corner of American life. There, and there just isn't anything he's not interested in, uh, and and there isn't uh, too many ways in which he isn't willing to use the FBI not just as a, an instrument of law enforcement, but kind of as an instrument of enforcing social norms. Even maybe we can talk about that in the second segment, but. He kind of – it almost seems like he meets his match or somebody who exceeds him in those ways when he's working for Nixon, his final president. There's stuff Nixon wants him to do that Hoover won't do. He doesn't want to go after uh, Daniel Ellsberg the way Nixon wants him gone after. Um, and he, you know, Nixon has this guy named Thomas Charles Houston who basically wants to expand – this uh, who's tasked with kind of expanding the surveillance state or whatever you might want to call it, uh, you suggest that the White House plumbers themselves are an outgrowth of Nixon's frustration with Hoover not willing to do stuff, the kinds of dirty tricks and, and beyond that, you know, I mean, criminal activities that the plumbers engage in. So once again, kind of a weird paradox. There isn't anything he won't do until Nixon comes along. There are lots of presidents in this book, and I got very, you know, sort of interested in Hoover's relationships with all of them. But Nixon was really a special case, in part because before Nixon becomes president, uh, he's elected in 1968, becomes president in 1969. But for about two and a half decades before that, he and Hoover had been very good friends. They'd been political allies. They'd been social friends. They really liked each other quite a lot and shared you know, a lot of a sensibility. Um, and so the assumption was both because Nixon ran on this law and order platform in 1968, he does all of this kind of pageantry to champion Hoover, say he's going to keep J. Edgar Hoover on, even though by this point, Hoover is in his mid 70s. And lots of people are saying maybe the moment has come to retire. But then once Nixon is actually in office as president, he wants to politicize the FBI. He basically wants the FBI to perform his political dirty tricks. And Hoover says, I'm not going to do that. Um, his younger agents sometimes say he was just kind of getting old and losing his edge. But you know, Hoover's stance was a lot of the FBI's reputation and its legitimacy rests on not being seen as a partisan tool or too much of a tool of the president's. And, and he just thought Nixon was going too far. Right. Um, there's a way in, in that idea of not aligning with any particular party. I don't know. There's a possibly apocryphal story about Richelieu that he's you know up in the balcony somewhere and looking down uh, on the streets and there's unrest in the streets and somebody asks him, well, who's winning out there? And he says, we are. And and somebody else says, what does that mean? And he says, I'm going to go down and find out what that means. Uh, <laughs> which there's a little bit of that in Hoover, too. It's like, who's your guy? He's the guy? Whoever the guy is there that I need to be my guy. That's who, who my guy is. All right. We're talking to Beverly Gage. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to get into some specific stories. Uh, the book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. I will say there's no way to wreck this book because there's like something really interesting on every page. And there's 830-something pages. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. talk a little bit more about the, some of that aspect of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, the book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Beverly Gage wrote it. It won the Pulitzer Prize for biography. It uh, absolutely deserves it. Uh, and so before we get to that, though, just very quickly, one of the things that really kind of, I don't know, it really sunk in with me reading the book. So I was born in 1954. And I suddenly became aware of how much kind of effectively FBI propaganda I had absorbed in my childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, and a lot of it, Beverly, coming not from propaganda arms so much as just sort of popular culture. There was a way in which one of the brilliant the things that Hoover seemed to understand is if you can control perception of, say, the agency that you run in movies and on television, you can really control quite a bit of people's attitudes about that agency. Um, before you say uh, anything, I'll just play just to give people one more example. This is the trailer for the 1959 movie, uh, The FBI Story. As you're hearing these words, you're seeing Jimmy Stewart, who plays this agent, kind of going through his day. This is A2Cat. This is a fellow named Chip Hardesty. To see him walking on a street, or in the familiar routines of a family man, or even in the daily pursuit of his job, you might not pick him out as something special. But there is something special about Chip Hardesty. So special, a whole big, tremendously exciting motion picture has been made about him. And men like him. So special, it has been given this proud and distinguished seal This is the official shield of the FBI. Now, for the first time, you'll see the real, the authentic, the fascinating inside story of the FBI. 
I should say also in that trailer, there is, and this is almost de rigueur, uh, a little cameo shot of, of Hoover himself, the real Hoover, signing some kind of document. There's always some agent leaning over to give him this document. I don't know if that's Clyde or not. That's uh, usually Clyde. It's usually Clyde, yeah. Because yeah. I think House, in, House on 70, 92nd Street also has almost exactly the same shot. There's like somebody putting a document over his shoulder for him to sign. So there's so much to unpack there, really, right? I mean, first of all, just talk about the way in which this helped control American attitudes towards the Bureau. You were definitely born into the heyday of uh, <laughs> Hoover's reputation, which was in the 1950s. And we really think about him as a villain today, but it's kind of incredible to think about the idea that in the 1950s, he often had approval ratings in the you know 70s, 80s, into, into the 90 percentiles. Uh, so he was one of the most popular figures in the United States. And a lot of that came through FBI PR, its cooperation with Hollywood, etc. And there's something really absurd about it on the one hand, right? You're kind of building up Hoover in particular um, as this ridiculous mythic figure. Uh, but on the other hand, I think, you know, this came out of a couple of insights that Hoover had, which I think are true. The first was um, that the work of government isn't necessarily legible to the American public. People don't understand what the government's doing unless you sell it to them, right? They're not going to support you unless they know what you're doing. They like it and they want to support you. And then from a law enforcement perspective, uh, he had the view that the FBI was really going to benefit from the idea that they were invincible, right? There's no point in committing a crime because the FBI will surely get you. Um, and in the idea that they were trustworthy, right? That ordinary people ought to cooperate with them uh, and give them tips, et cetera. So uh, there are many absurd elements to the massive PR machine that Hoover developed, but there there was some logic behind it other than just kind of egomania. Yeah. And I think, you know, in your book, it's clear that in, th in this, you know, if, if people could watch this trailer, um, they would see it. Um, there's sort of um, an anonymous character who runs through this book. And it's the, kind of the generic paradigmatic G-man and the FBI agent. And who is he? He's Jimmy Stewart. He's kind of a tall, thin, white guy. He's definitely a white male uh, in a suit and a hat. Uh, and that's who he is, right? And, and Hoover has this idea that he wants kind of a super race, <laughs> you should pardon the expression, of this kind of person who is like kind of a little bit better than everybody else in a certain way, but not at all elite or aristocratic. That would be those jerks in the CIA with their skull and bones connections. But um, say a little bit more about that. He has this vision of the, the G-man. It's a very specific vision, as you say, and it's pretty consistent from the moment that he becomes director of the Bureau in the 20s um, through to his death in the 70s. Um, it is uh, the agent corps, at any rate. There are lots of people of other backgrounds, women, people of color working in other parts of the FBI. But his agent corps, his kind of star investigators, are a very particular type. They are white men, usually pretty conservative, often with a fraternity background, lawyers and accountants. So they have to have college degrees for the most part. And they are intended not to be individual superstars, but to be representatives of the Bureau and in many ways of Hoover himself. He wants them to be incorruptible. He wants them not to drink. He wants them to go to church. Uh, he's got this whole kind of moral 
and PR universe that his agents are supposed to be part of. I mean, again, there's a logic to it, which is that these men are representing the Bureau. If you want the Bureau to continue to be funded, to have the support of the American public, you have to be these kind of shining knights. Um, there is uh, I would say a, a, a more um, nefarious aspect to this, which is that it inbred uh, an incredibly intense and very conservative culture among the agent corps in lots of ways, certainly around race, certainly around gender. Um, and by the time Hoover's getting older, you know, the fact that he's built this kind of cult of personality at the bureau means that nobody's really telling him when he's making bad decisions. It, it, you know, he's kind of surrounded by yes men in the end. Yeah. The G-men are yes-men. And so did, wasn't there a period where he was getting pressure from the black community? Um, to, how come there's no black FBI agents? How come they're all white? Doesn't he like send a couple of his people who were like his drivers and stuff to Quantico to just kind of say, okay, here's some black agents. Sure, I'm training them right he now. He does. It's it's a kind of amazing story that that pressure starts in the 1940s, really, uh, coming out of the Second World War. A lot of it's coming from the NAACP. Um, and Hoover professes to be a racial liberal in many ways in this moment um, and says, you know, uh, of course, if only we had some qualified people, we could have black agents. But what he does uh, to kind of calm things down is exactly he's got maybe four or five. Uh, figures in the bureau, most of whom work in one manner or another as his personal servants. So his greeter, who was kind of a butler type, uh, his chauffeur, um, and they suddenly are told to go to Quantico, get their agent qualifications, then they come back to the bureau as quote unquote agents, but uh, resume their former roles. Right. And so, I mean, there's a, a lot going on there. And there's a way in which you know, gradually Hoover transforms his own idea about what transgression is, not simply to confine to breaking the law, but he starts to view social change as kind of a transgression, something that he's got to deal with. And 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 so the uh, one of the ma major focal points of that is the civil rights movement. One of the major focal points of that is Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King. And he really just goes after King in a, an incredibly toxic way. And a, 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 and as usual, he's very interested in the personal life of King, which turns out to be a rich and fertile area for him. But I, one thing I, I had not known was the story of the so-called suicide letter. Uh, and, and, and I think you were able to really kind of track it back so that you can sort of see uh, Hoover's thumbprint on this. But just tell the story of that letter and then kind of what you discovered about it. Right. I said, as a historian, you get attached to certain documents as you <laughs> kind of are conducting this sort of research. Um, and that letter was certainly one of them. So it is really the culmination of a years long campaign that the FBI conducted against Martin Luther King. Um, it started out in many ways as uh, an investigation into a couple of people in King's orbit um, who were involved with the Communist Party, right? This is uh, sort of the height of the Cold War. Uh, and then it extends from that. You begin wiretapping those guys. Uh, you move into wiretapping King. Ultimately, they began uh, putting bugs in King's hotel rooms uh, to capture his personal life, his travels. And through those, they started recording um, a series of kind of extramarital sexual episodes um, that King was engaged in. This is 1964. Um, at the end of that year, this letter 
comes along and two important things happen by way of context. One is that Hoover has a kind of public showdown with King. He calls King the most notorious liar in America and it makes headlines everywhere. They have a big kind of public spat. Ultimately, King comes to the FBI. They have a sit down um, and uh, and allegedly make make peace with each other. But at the same time, the FBI engages in a dirty tricks operation in which uh, they write a an anonymous letter to King purporting to be from a black admirer that says, King, you know, I've found out about your sex life. And it goes into incredibly graphic, degrading detail. And I used to believe in you, but I no longer believe in you. Um, they send it with a uh, reel of these recordings they've made in his hotel room. And that letter ends by saying, King, you know what you have to do, um, and kind of gives him a deadline for doing it. Uh, King gets this and interprets that line, you know what you have to do as an attempt by the FBI uh, to get him to kill himself. And that's why it's now known as the suicide letter. And what was exciting for me is that the existence of that letter had been known for many decades, um, but we had only ever seen a redacted version of it. And so in the course of my research, I was able to find the first kind of unredacted copy of that letter. Um, and it is totally graphic and outrageous and uh, and pretty shocking and appalling. Um, one of the worst things the FBI ever did. So there's um, there's so many other things I want to ask you about, and I'm running out of time. Uh, I was hoping to get into Operation Solo, which is fascinating, or the U-boats uh, off the coast of Long Island. There's, uh, And I'm just going to just tell everybody, you got to read this book that tells, I mean, it's also the kind of book I think you can read episodically. You can even kind of hunt and peck around in, in it. You'll wind up reading the whole thing one way or another. Right. Um, the book is long, but the chapters are short <laughs> so that people could actually do some of that episode hunting if they want. And there's a lot of pictures, including some, you know, rather tempting uh, views of Clyde Tolson with his shirt off and stuff like that. So uh, lots of lots of things <laughs> to look at. All right. I think we are going to take a break right now. Uh, and we're going to come back with more of Beverly Gage. Uh, uh, the book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, uh, which is really very, very apt. Uh, we will come back. We will talk more. Every move you make, every bound you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Every single day, every word you say. Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believed. Back to the show. We are back. Uh, I got to say some thank yous right now. One of them is to Cat Pastor, our exemplary uh, technical producer, uh, and Lily Tyson, who is the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, is also the producer of this episode. This was a hard episode to put together, mainly because there were so many really good choices, uh, and so we struggled. But one thing that we wanted to do in talking to Beverly Gage, author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century, uh, well, let me just, first of all, Beverly, I'm going to play a little game with you. Um, uh, I'm going to read uh, a news item to you 
you, and then you can tell me what it refers to. It's, it's a trick, so be suspicious. Um, three days after a highly publicized search for classified documents, the FBI director sent a memo to bureau workers urging them to tune out criticism from those who, quote, don't know what we know and don't see what we see. The work was done by the book, the director wrote. We don't cut corners. We don't play favorites. Uh, Beverly Gage, any guesses on what that is? Well, of course, I want to say Trump, but since you've already told me uh, it's a trick. Oh, no, I'm that gonna... is that is the trick. It's Christopher Ray talking about the Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> oh, okay. So, but it sounds like something that Hoover could have said, right? We don't cut corners. You know, we don't play favorites. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about this. While you're working on this book, in the 13 years you're writing this, uh, uh, this book, the FBI itself is going through yet another transformation in the public eye. You know, and, and this period of time includes, among other things, all the ways in which James Comey became uh, sort of key to 2015, 2016, 2017. Uh, you know, he's a major factor twice in the election regarding Clinton's uh, emails. Uh, you know, eventually, of course, he and Trump lock horns. Trump fires him. Um, <laughs> there, and, and after that, there's all this other stuff. Now, if there's a, a demonstration on behalf of Trump, there's people holding up signs saying, abolish the FBI or something. <laughs> so I don't know. Every once in a while, you must have looked up from your notes there in the library and thought, what? <laughs> what is happening there in the outside world? Talk a little, about, a little bit about how you see that transformation. I did discover pretty quickly that, uh, in part because Hoover had his fingers in so many things, that um, as the news cycle changed, um, you know, kind of my sense of what might be interesting about the book to people today also changed. But obviously, the Trump years really brought the FBI to, to the fore in a very dramatic way and one we haven't seen in a long time. And I think there are, in my mind, sort of two ways to think about it. One is that we've seen this incredible shift since Hoover's death in the 70s. Um, around the FBI's political reputation, right? It used to be when Hoover died, Democrats, liberals, leftists were very critical of the Bureau, and Republicans and conservatives tended to champion the Bureau, right? This bastion of of law and order, um, a force that did a lot to kind of contain and, and surveil the American left. And now we're seeing a pretty dramatic reversal of that, and public opinion polls bear this out, right? That the FBI is much more popular um, among Democrats and liberals than among Republicans and conservatives, and we, we really haven't seen that before. The other is that I think there are certain parts of this that would have been somewhat familiar to Hoover in the sense that he understood throughout his career that the greatest problem that the FBI could have was to be drawn into politicized investigations and to get a reputation as being the tool of one party or one faction or another. Now, his solution is not the solution that we want, which is that he sort of played ball with everyone and kind of did political favors uh, pretty much for everyone. But I think he would have recognized this big dilemma that the FBI has, which is that you're being pulled into these very politicized investigations. You're supposed to be apolitical and nonpartisan, and it's actually a pretty tough thing uh, to figure out how to balance those things. Yeah, and there's, uh, you know, post-Hoover, 
correct me if I'm wrong about this, <clears throat> but post Hoover, I think there's this decision that it's going to be a 10 year appointment, right? So it'll, you know, if in fact somebody serves the full amount of time, it's got to spill over even past a two term presidency, no matter how you structure it. And, and that's the idea of this really shouldn't be um, something that's, that's a one party thing or at least a one president thing. There's an attempt made, uh, I guess, Beverly, to kind of depoliticize the job as much as it can be. That's right. In the in the late 60s, early 70s uh, to the later part of that decade, there are a series of reforms that are kind of aimed at preventing another J. Edgar Hoover. So one of those is an actual term limit for the FBI director. And as you say, it's intended to be uh, you know, short enough to be limited so no one can amass that kind of unaccountable power that Hoover had, and yet long enough that the FBI director isn't going to be anyone's political tool. Um, there are other, uh, you know, mechanisms of accountability that come in, congressional committees, etc., uh, that just weren't there when Hoover was around. But, you know, I think there are some people today who are now looking back at Hoover and saying, wow, well, you know, one of the things that he actually was able to do with that unaccountable power is to insulate the FBI from these kinds of partisan pressures um, a little better than uh, than some directors are, are able to do today. And in fact, you know, kind of his longevity, his own reputation um, really did serve the FBI pretty well in these moments of political controversy. Yeah, there, there must be so many ways in which, you know, the past is umbilically connected to the present present, in and, and, and ways in which are very visible to you. I was thinking, getting ready for this show, that in 1917, Hoover leaves school, right? The war is starting, the American involvement in World War I is starting. Uh, there's um, a sense that, you know, it's important to be doing something else. He doesn't necessarily want to go into the service, but he wants to go into a different kind of service. Um, 1917 is also when the Espionage Act is passed. <laughs> so uh, when Trump gets charged over Mar-a-Lago, they are citing the 1917 Espionage Act uh, as one of the big problems for Trump. It's the law he's violating in a lot of cases. That must have had a little funny little bell ringing in your head. Yeah, it's an amazing moment, World War One. I. I mean, historians often talk about it at the moment that the modern state begins to be born. And I think for good reason. I mean, in these terms, right, the Bureau is really just beginning its political work during those years. You get the Espionage Act. And it's also the moment that the ACLU is born. Right? So you get these players who have just been going at it in one way or another for more than a century. You know, another thing, it's funny because I saw Oppenheimer uh, and uh, Hoover has gets one little mention in Oppenheimer. But there's a lot in Oppenheimer about the difference between being a sympathizer at that particular moment, uh, late 30s, early 40s maybe, with the Communist Party and the goals, its goals in America for workers uh, and worker solidarity and unionization and stuff like that. And uh, over and over again, Oppenheimer or his wife are trying to make clear, you know, I'm not like a sympathizer of the Communist Party writ large in Russia. I'm a, you know, I'm a sympathizer with the Communist Party and some of its goals, some of its ideas I like, uh, and and certainly the the Spanish Civil War. I know which side I want to be on. I'm trying to get money to them. The communists are the ones. And I, I thought about that because in a way, that's a distinction that Hoover, I think he sort of erases that, right? I mean, in his mind, there there isn't the dichotomy that Oppenheimer is trying to express. I'll just say a little something about that. 
anti-communism really was in many ways the, the cause of Hoover's life, right? The thing that he cared most about. And it's where he started out as a very young man. Uh, you know, At the age of about 24, he became head of this thing called the Radical Division, which was you know, an attempt to keep tabs on the American left in, in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and he still is involved in that work to, to the day that he dies. And you're right. I mean, in the 1940s, when he really gets going into anti-communist investigations on a big scale, he has very little sympathy for you know, the uh, humanitarian or egalitarian motives of anyone who had been a communist in the 30s, or even during the Second World War in the 1940s, when the Soviet Union was allied with the United States. Um, by about 1940, he's just engaged in pretty widespread surveillance of the Communist Party. And then uh, by the late 40s and into the 50s, you know, he's one of the big architects of the Red Scare. The, the thing, this is probably where we're going to have to end, but, you know, the thing that, of course, runs through uh, all of Hoover's rhetoric, uh, the justification for everything that he does, and I think it's fairly genuine, is America, the American ideal. I will do anything to safeguard this country, um, and, and I will go after anybody I perceive as its enemy. Sometimes that might be sort of anti-war protesters, but so what? So what? I, they're still, they're against this country. I just I want to leave you on a very sour note, which is um, uh, one of the things that Trump tweeted after the raid on Mar-a-Lago. He said, remember in Helsinki when a third rate reporter asked me essentially who I trusted more, President Putin of Russia or our intelligence lowlifes. My instinct at the time was that we had really bad people. Uh, and then he rattles uh, – he kind of rattles off the name of several former top FBI officials. And then he goes, add McGonagall and other slime to this list. Who would you choose, Putin or these misfits? I just – can you imagine Hoover hearing something like that, hearing a president say that, that he trusts the leader of Russia more than the FBI? It's, we just have arrived at this incredible moment. It is an incredible moment. Um, it's a, a shocking and an appalling moment in lots of ways. And the truth is, uh, during Hoover's day, no one would have dared to say that about the FBI, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, no president, uh, no politician, almost no one in American life. Right. No, it's, it is just incredible. I mean, some of it, of course, is... <laughs> you know, Hoover would have controlled, tried to control Trump by knowing all of his secrets. As far as we can tell, all of Trump's secrets come out and they don't seem to hurt him. You know, I mean, the E. Jean Carroll doesn't seem to hurt him. I mean, just nothing he does seems to hurt him. It's just a very different world than the one Hoover inhabited. It would be fascinating to, to see him try to navigate it. Well, this is a great book. I'm sorry for all of the things we didn't talk about, but I, I'm really serious to people. I mean, you, you'd be very wise just to get the book and you'll find stuff on every page that we didn't get to cover. But first of all, Beverly Gage, thank you very much. Congratulations on your Pulitzer Prize for G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the making of the American century. Thanks so much. All right. And we have to say goodbye now. Uh, and we will be back. We will be back with yet another show tomorrow. Nobody can stop us, not even J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs>